Welcome to Rules of the Frame. I am your host, Connor Reed, and here's your other host, John Skinner. Sorry, that was bad. I'm excited for this one. <laughs> I, I was like, I know you're going to do something. Whenever there's that long of a gap, I know something is coming. And I knew it had to happen at some point in this episode. And that something is a random French song slowed way down until it sounds like <laughs> something else something else yeah yeah i'm just gonna edit that out and put in the actual inception boom (laughs) that's good (laughs) oh man so for those of you who are listening in for the first time we are a film podcast we pick a subject or theme and explore films related to those topics our overall goal is to encourage the general public to view film as more than just a piece of entertainment but also a piece of art and something to discuss and explore we are halfway through now this is a very short miniseries i'm just realizing we're halfway through our series of the top five films of the 2010s our first two episodes were on avengers endgame and gravity and now we have come to inception and now i know this could like kind of be a controversial pick because this is kind of based on our own uh perceptions of impact of film over the last 10 years whenever we were discussing what the the measures for the top five it's based on the heart it's like us putting this movie in the list is like when you decide how much garlic to put in your recipe it's you can't look at a list you just have to know with your heart how much to put in (laughs) and that's that's why we decided to put this movie in okay (laughs) yeah that's that's exactly it so we are trying to determine what film from the 2010s had like the most kind of like cultural and significant like impact it doesn't even have to be on the impact of the world of film but just impact in general whether that's like quotability or just references or anything like that and we were kind of tied between three movies we'll give them a shout out now just so that way people know that that was what else we were thinking so we were thinking inception mad max fury road and star wars the force awakens and each one of those i feel like reaches into the public in a bunch of different ways but we feel like the broadest consensus of things was just seeing the impact of Inception, which happened at literally the very beginning of the decade and has been blowing away people ever since. It's been a huge film in my life for a bunch of reasons, which I'll get into later on. But now we also have a guest with us as well. So uh, we got Luke Hogan here again. He's back from the Apocalypse Now episode. And yeah. 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 Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, this film. I think that it was a big deal for me. And uh, I was in high school and, you know, went to see it with my friends. And it was one of those movies that I, like, had looked up myself and was interested in Mm. on my own. And that was kind of one of the first times I'd really done that was finding a film that I I was interested in on my own, I guess, and and going to see Mm. it with my buddies. So, yeah, excited to, uh, to be on the podcast again. Yeah, definitely. It's it's great to have you back on. John, do you want to get us started off with a summary of the film? All right. 
The film begins with two men, Cobb and Arthur, who are extractors who use dream-sharing technology to enter subjects' minds and steal important information for corporate espionage. Their attempt to steal information from a business executive, Saito, fails when a projection of Cobb's wife, Maul, betrays them, and they are killed in a dream within a dream, which in combination with being dropped, aka a kick, wakes them up. Cobb and Arthur escape, but another member of their team is captured by Saito, and he offers them another job, to plant information instead of steal it. He wants them to convince his rival to break up his company when he inherits it from his father. Saito offers to to use his influence to expunge false charges against Cobb that he killed his wife, which would mean he could return home to his children for the first time since her death. Arthur and Cobb accept the job, even though Arthur doubts Inception is possible. Cobb claims to have done it before, and that it is possible. They travel the world building their team. Ariadne, an architecture student in Paris, will design the dream. Youssef, a chemist, will create compounds that allow them to go three levels deep within a dream. Eames, a forger, studies Saito's rival, Fisher, in person to understand his relationship with his father before he passes away. Together, they devise a plan. When Fisher flies from Sydney to L.A., they will drug him and join a shared dream where they will convince him that his father really wants him to be his own man and break apart the company. In training with Cobb, Ariadne learns that Cobb is dangerously obsessed with his dead wife, who became convinced reality was a dream and committed suicide, while framing Cobb for her death in an attempt to get him to join her. Cobb keeps designed memories of his dreams, which is dangerous, in an attempt to relive his regrets uh, while he's racked with guilt over his wife's death. Ariadne uh, joins one of his dreams and discovers that he is doing this, and then decides to join the mission and actually enter the dream, instead of just designing the dreams, because no one else on the team understands the risk Cobb will bring Maul into the dream and that she will sabotage their plans. When Fisher's father dies, the team boards the, his flight to L.A. and join a dream with him after drugging him. On the first level, they kidnap him and pretend to be thieves who want to uh, the code to a secret safe that includes a will that will break up his company. At first, Fisher is skeptical and thinks his father hated him and had the will made up as an insult to him. But Eames begins to convince him, while in disguise as his godfather, that he really his father may have had feelings for him and, and loved him secretly and wanted him to be his own man. Saito is shot on the first level, and it is revealed that Yusef's compound will not allow them to wake up if they die, and that only the synchronized kick at the end of the mission will allow them to wake up. If they die, they will drop into limbo, a shared unconstructed dream space, and possibly go insane. This revelation, combined with the fact that Fisher has been trained and that his subconscious is militarized, means that the risks are much higher than anyone understood. Cobb tells Ariadne that he and Maul had gotten stuck in limbo for decades, where they will get stuck if they die with the compound, and possibly go insane. He and his wife got stuck in limbo years ago, and he had to incept the idea that they were not in reality to get Maul to return to the real world. When they did return, she continued to doubt reality until she killed herself. With the stakes raised, the whole team and Fisher hop in a van and drop into another level where the team tell Fisher he is in a dream in an attempt to convince him his godfather is conning him 
and that they need to drop another level into his another dream to try and find whatever his godfather is hiding, hoping that Fisher will actually populate that dream with the idea of hoping that his father wanted him to break up the company. They drop into the third level and try and break into a military hospital while Yusef drives the van, crashing it off a bridge as their first kick. The team realizes that they have missed their first kick and that while the van falls in free fall towards the river, they have a second kick that will be their last chance to escape the dream. Arthur on the second level gathers the team together and in zero gravity fights off enemies and ties the team together in a complicated attempt to create a artificial kick. On the third level, Saito dies and Maul kills Fisher, presumably ending their mission in failure. However, Ariadne comes up with the idea to go a level deeper, follow Fisher into limbo, and retrieve him, all syncing everything together so that they can escape at the very end. Ariadne and Cobb enter limbo and rescue Fisher. Cobb decides to leave Maul and go rescue Saito, who has fallen into limbo as well. He reveals that he was the one that did Inception on his wife, that he needs to let her go, and that the projection of Maul is nowhere near the level of his wife in real life. Everything comes together, and the team escapes with the last kick sinking between the levels, and the van crashes in the water, they escape, and Cobb rescues Saito, who has grown very, very old in limbo. Fisher, after being revived, enters the center of the hospital, and it is revealed that Inception was successful and that he believes that his father cared for him and wanted for him, him to break up his company. They all awaken on the plane at the end of their flight, and Saito makes a call so that Cobb can go home without being arrested. He returns to his family and puts his top that allows him to know whether he's in reality or not spinning, but leaves it, meaning that he cares more about his family than whether he's alive or not. It's complicated. Or awake or not. <laughs> it is, like, man, it's a hard, that's a hard uh, story to summarize, though. Just, uh, there's just so many moving parts, you know? It's funny realizing how much, like, I, I, I think of these char- all these actors as, as being Inception characters and everything else that they're in, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, right. Scorsese will never admit it, but I always thought that some of the twist of Shutter Island was reliant on, not completely, but like there was a little bit of, we're more likely to get caught by the twist if you had seen Inception because you're sort of believing. Oh, the, yeah. The, the, even in Inception where there's question of what's reality, you know, he's very clear-minded. And right. He, it's always interesting when you, you play a similar character, you know, in another movie. Because he's also regretful of his wife and things like that. And you sort of trust that yeah. the, the memories are true because they were in it, you know, in Inception. But Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's almost like those two films kind of were, I mean, they're similar. I Didn't uh, Shutter Island come out in 2011, maybe? Is that right? Yeah, I'm not even sure. Yeah, they may, but they may not even be It makes you wonder if he took some, took some influence or, you know, appreciated what Nolan was doing. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm sure it probably wasn't that big of a, a part of it, but it's always interesting. Sure. Yeah, so my two words are clean logic. I wanted to say dense logic, but I keep 
doing the two words being the same phrase, mm. and I, I'm trying to get away from that. So clean logic. Um, I think this movie, I, the thing that really hit me, I mean, I love this movie. I've seen it so many times. But the thing that really hit me this time was this movie so much about it you know it's about dreaming technically but i think it's much more about storytelling and creativity mm-hmm. than it is about dreaming i mean the dreaming technology really doesn't make sense for what dreams really are in real life but as a metaphor for you know unbridled imagination it's much more effective and and so because it's so much about storytelling so much of the logic of the film is about getting as much detail into it into the movie watching experience like there's so many layers to the story there's so many layers to the the plot and i realized that this is not like an extended universe type of movie where there's you you go on a a fan website and there's all this extended everything that's in the world is on screen and i realized nolan when he make does world building it's all crammed onto the the movie watching experience it's not outside of the film in the background it's it's exactly the story you're supposed to see on screen nothing more and so i i really appreciated that 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 this is a movie made for the movie watcher it's not a peek into a larger world it's really just a puzzle on screen so the logic is really dense um and then clean i think aesthetically it's really interesting what he does i think it's eternal what is it called I'm getting oh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Etern- Mind. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is a similar concept, premise, but it goes a completely different direction with, with what memory is and what dreams are and, and what the unconscious is. And I realized that this premise doesn't lend itself to what he does, which is a heist film, but it's that's that's what makes it so fresh is that it's such a clean, crisp, you know, everything is presented very clearly on screen and so you have this the ability to have this dense story that you understand because it's not dreamy and and esoteric it's this is the logic of the world the first third of the movie first half of the movie is just explaining the how the world works with this technology and then both of these things come together in that last hour last 45 minutes which is one of my favorite hours of movie of any movie ever because it's just pure action pure drive to get to the end and it all comes together literally at the end which is so amazing and i think just watching this again it's so strange because i think it's had such an impact but i was just remembering that it's not as unique as it was when it came out but when it came out it was like nothing else in theaters and Mm -hmm. i i just have such an appreciation for you know we talk about what nolan does and he sort of does a lot of the same things every movie but i think in a lot of ways this is the quintessential Nolan movie because it's all about a puzzle on screen you kind of take the premise for what it is and you don't think about it too much but once you do that once you accept that initial premise it's used every last bit of what you could do with it is squeezed out and you really get the fullness of the complexity that you could from the premise and and it leads to a really really enjoyable uh, heist film that's nothing like any other heist film ever yeah my two words for the film are unintentional resolution. I think I kind of had almost like the opposite reaction uh, to you, John, of watching this, where I think you kind of, you know, focus more on like the logic and like that sort of thing, which is like 
a lot of what I focused on in high school. And then this time, I mean, I really watched it and it was just more kind of hit by like the emotional side of things. Like I know one of the things that Nolan is kind of critiqued for is like not having like emotion in, in his movies. But I think, and there's like a really good interview with uh, Dalip Rao who plays Yusuf where he actually talks about this saying like, I think whenever people think of that and say that what they're actually referencing is that he doesn't throw in like the schmaltzy, like really, emotional moments in a lot of big Hollywood movies that try to get you to cry, you know, and it's just much more subtle, which I, you know, I, I kind of agree with him in that. I also see like the reason for critique of it, but I think that there's some really good and solid emotion. Like whenever I watched it, like this was like my favorite movie for like the longest time, of course. And I would tear up like every time. I don't think I would fully cry, but I, I would tear up like every time I watched it. And I think that's because of, yes, the effects are cool. Yes, the world is cool. But it doesn't like really mean anything if there isn't, like you said, that drive behind it. And you get like kind of resolution where you wouldn't expect as much. Like you're expecting the resolution for Cobb to be like he's going to get home and see his kids. But his real resolution is like, moving on like kind of finishing the grieving process and like reconciling with his wife and like being literally able to tell her things that you know he wouldn't be able to tell her in in real life because she's dead at that point and like he says you know that catharsis in there is like kind of like what hits and especially that line whenever she the her projection is saying like you promised that we were going to grow old together. And he's like, we did grow old together and like shows them. And like, that's the part that didn't get me before, but this time like actually made me tear up. And I was like, wow, that is like something I always remembered, but it's just like kind of like a sweet little, little touch in there tying up things on his end where he was like, I was a bad husband and you know, all of that. And saying that they still did like get to live like a full life together in that sense. But also the, the resolution of Fisher's character as well where it's kind of like an unexpected benefit. The intention is just for him to break up his company, but instead he gets a resolution with his dad and strengthens that relationship as well. And kind of, I I think that Nolan really likes post-mortem strengthened relationships (laughs) where like people dealing with their emotions towards someone after they pass on, I think is something that really fascinates him. You kind of see that in some of his other films as well. I don't really want to spoil that sort of stuff but I think that that's just something that he's like that's not a theme that's dealt with a whole lot in Hollywood like usually it's like the who is the right in front of me that I'm trying to resolve conflict with instead of like the who is past that I'm still trying to reconcile with and and gravity I think deals with that as well in in our last episode when we were talking about that yeah I think it gets mistaken for an emotionless film because people have story emotional story beats that are so bizarre compared to other movies like it's not facial expressions you see someone's emotional state because they locked something in a box or they they walk away from a top like it's everything so there's always like a, a, a just an interesting way that he sort of explains the mind and it's so different than what we're used to I think having a, you know emotional weight in a film yeah my uh, so my two words um, I don't want to walk on what you said, Creed, but I, I said uh, subversive emotion. Was emotion one of your words? Uh, no, resolution. I... Resolution. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, obviously subversive in the, in the sense that, uh, you know, something subtle behind the scenes, uh, you know, is happening in these people's minds that convinces them or moves them to act in a certain way. And the emotion, you know, uh, these people's decision 
decisions are being made not by what's the most logical choice? Should I dissolve my father's company that I'm inheriting? But rather, does my father really love me? Um, what is my real purpose? You know, uh, and then Cobb trying to deal with the emotions behind uh, his wife and being in limbo and trying to understand reality and wanting to get back to his children. You know, it's just there's a lot of emotional things that drive these people um, to make the decisions that they do in the film. Um, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Well, before we start our conversation, I'll get into now in film history. I feel weird doing this for like any of these films because they happened so recently, but who cares? Inception comes out in 2010. But as everyone knows, Nolan had been working on this idea slash script for like 10 years. And he even cites like he had this original idea whenever he was like a teenager and like had like a lucid dream and... It's like, wow, that's really fascinating, like, how you're, you're, I also, like, wonder what Christopher Nolan's dreams are like, too, because from the way he describes them, like, (laughs) they sound much more realistic than anything I've ever had. But he's like, you know, in your dream, you can, like, reach out and grab a handful of sand, and your mind will, like, process each individual grain of sand. And so that, to me, was just insane, just, like, how real everything feels back or in there. And, you know, what would the concept be like if you could share a dream? And his original concept for the film was actually supposed to be like a horror movie that takes place like inside the mind and inside dreams and that sort of thing. He actually pitches it right after he makes Insomnia back in like 2001, I think, sometime in the early 2000s, pitches it to Warner Brothers, then realizes I'm not ready to make this caliber of a movie right now. Like I need to have more experience making bigger budget movies. So he goes and makes Batman Begins afterwards and then does The Prestige and then The Dark Knight and then he decides he's finally ready to make Inception. He works on the screenplay for six months and he brings on Leonardo DiCaprio. I can't, I'm not sure at what point, I mean, after he sold the script to Warner Brothers, of course. And then him and Leonardo DiCaprio talk it over and like kind of go over the story beats and the emotional side of things and really kind of rework the script after that. And I think that's where some of the other like harder hitting emotional stuff kind of comes in there as well. And they make the film, I think it has a $160 million budget and makes a ton of money and is crazy. I mean, like it was just a movie. I remember literally every single person was talking about, like it was the sort of thing where if you were at school and you hadn't seen inception, you were far behind anything. And like, I just don't really remember the last time there was a movie like that throughout growing up throughout the rest of high school maybe for like avengers but even then there were still a lot of people who were like "Ah, i don't really care about superhero movies but it was like everyone had seen inception everyone was talking about inception like i remember my dad uh, worked at a university in arkansas and we would have like viewings of it at our house like everyone was watching and trying to figure this out after the first time we watched it and we watched it with like um my whole not my whole family but Some of my family, my younger siblings weren't there, my aunt, my cousins, and my grandparents. And like afterwards, we were just like sitting and just like talking about it for like hours afterwards. And that was the other thing too, where it wasn't just a sort of thing like, oh, that was a really cool movie. Did you see it? Yeah, I thought it was cool too. Okay. But everyone like had an opinion on it. Everyone was trying to figure it out. Everyone was trying to decode what Nolan was saying. And it really just got stuck in the public psyche. I mean, just references are made everywhere. And yeah, I mean, there's so many things that are still embedded in 
society and culture and i mean like the whole inception bomb, you know yeah, yeah. as they say yeah yeah and just other things and people adding shun to the things of like boxception like a box within a box you know like all <laughs> yeah. of those stupid little things yeah. that just get stuck around because of it and i think that's really incredible for a one-off blockbuster film that's you know yeah fairly complex when compared to other blockbusters and other movies in general this movie probably had more impact on trailers yes. than any like anything else because that that sound effect got it put in every single trailer for 5 to 10 years after that mm. even and still it, i mean hans hans zimmer's score is so influential i mean it's just amazing and there's like a handful of new i mean there's been sci-fi since but i i don't remember a sci-fi concept like this anything that was such a just a, a mat you know a, a movement people mm-hmm. were just talking about it like you said and um i'm gonna say something controversial maybe i'll save it for later something controversial which is the inception uh it was such a big thing the 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 inception mania was slightly an accident mm. not that nolan didn't mean this but i was thinking about this and i think we were talking about all the logic of it and then the emotion of it, and they both come together at the very end with the top. The top, I mean, we, the top, mm-hmm. the last cut, it is that is what takes it from a great movie to like you can't stop thinking about it because the movie does a little bit of inception on you at the end, right? Mm-hmm. You have, I think this is a movie where you, you don't follow all the details, but you, you very clearly follow where they're at, I think, at least for me, the whole movie. And so you, you kind of take at face value everything that's happening. And then at the very end, that that lingering, I mean, it's going to fall, right? It's going to fall, but you don't get to see it. And that cut to the the credits is like, it, what? <laughs> for a moment, it annihilates everything before it. And I think there's supposed to be some ambiguity there, but I think, I think people sort of miss, and I missed for a long time, that like you said, the top is Maul's top it's about mm-hmm. him moving on from mall mm-hmm. which we already got but it's it's a real strong version of that like he cared about whether he was alive because he wanted to get back to mall right mm-hmm. and i think there was part of i, I didn't realize till this time that like a little bit of it was he wanted if he was in a dream he could have a chance to see her again if, yeah. he, if he goes a level up because nolan spends so much time explaining the logic of what is reality what's not and then has mall sort of enticing him in everyone got obsessed with this idea that like is he in reality or Mm -hmm. not and the whole it's not the point the point is he's moving on from mall he's yeah i've heard people say like oh he's accepting his children whether or not they're real that's not it at all it's that he's accepting moving on from mall but i i think we all got a little bit confused a little bit tricked the the machine's a little calibrated a little bit off Mm -hmm. and so we all got obsessed with this idea it did an inception on us mm-hmm. accidentally and i think it took a long time to sort of realize what the the meaning of that top cut mm-hmm. was yeah well i think one of the things that's interesting too i mean that is just one of the most controversial points of the film one of the parts that everyone was talking about and i feel like everyone's everyone has a different ending in their mind of it because we all remember it differently. Like, I, I think they talk about this in the film. Maybe I'm actually getting it mixed up with something else. But how they're saying, oh, no, no, no. It was from a different movie that I just watched recently. But just saying, like, memory is not, like, a valid, like, source of something because we misremember things all the time. 
because from the first time I watched it, I was sold. I'm like, of course he's back in reality. I mean, you know, of like of that argument. I'm like, yeah, of course, because the thing shakes at the end. And in my mind, it's it's not just like a little wobble. It's like that thing is like flipping back and forth. Like it's about to fall over. And then every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, it just kind of shakes a little bit. And there are other friends who are like, no, it doesn't move at all. And then they go back and like, no, it wobbles like a little bit. You know, so there's that that sort of thing where we built it up in our mind as to like what we conceive the ending to be for the people who see it as like, oh, he's still on a dream or, oh, he's still in reality. We think the top moves a little bit more or a little bit less than it actually does. I read the screenplay right before this. And in the screenplay, it just says he goes to see his children and the top is still spinning, cut to credits. And so I almost think that it was DiCaprio's idea to have it like wobble a little bit or someone else's idea and that originally it was just going to be like he was in the dream. Because like it doesn't say in the footnotes that like, it wobbles a bit. It literally just says the top is still spinning. So I kind of wonder if that's something that was kind of added in later. Like, oh, maybe this will like hook people like a little bit more at the ending. I think Nolan for a long time was sort of annoyed with the answer, the question. Oh, yeah. He kept getting asked the question, yeah. right? And I, he kept saying like the point is he's doesn't care anymore. Mm-hmm. I think that misinterpreted that to mean like he doesn't care if he's in reality. Yeah. He's moving on from Maul. He's giving her up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a weird, like, one of the weirdest, like, editing decisions ever is, oh, we have to find a shot, a take where it's sort of wobbling a little bit, like, just oh, yeah. such subtlety. Mm-hmm. No, no, no movie has hinged so much on that <laughs> last shot so much. Except for the last shot of The Big Lebowski, where they have to get the two strikes in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's, that's true you're just gonna do that till you get it you yeah, know it's yeah. just time consuming yeah yeah and i think there is something too where if you want to like grasp i guess just the mindset of the public that there has to be some sort of like twist involved if it's going to like embed itself in culture because i mean i just think of like m night Shyamalan with the sixth sense where it was the same sort of thing where people were like oh my gosh like i didn't even realize this and you know that there's there's something to it more where it kind of like gets them in the end of like, oh, I didn't think it was actually like this. And I think just that little challenge is so helpful. Like, oh man, it was at some event I was at. I think that was like on like public speaking or something like that. But where they just said, whenever you're giving a speech, end it with a question. That's like how you impact the viewers or the listeners or the audience the most is to get them thinking more afterwards is to end it with a question. And I think that, Nolan loves doing like every single one of his movies, except for like maybe Dark Knight and Dark Knight, except for maybe the Batman trilogy is like a question, you know, and where he wants you to think more and more afterwards. And I think that's what he's really trying to get at. And what I appreciate about him is I think he doesn't see uh, the audience as the Hollywood studio system where they're like, oh, they're stupid. They just need like everything spoon fed to them he's like no they can think a little bit and i think he kind of has like a quadrilogy of that where he's like no the audience is smarter than we think and we can make more complicated movies starting off with memento then prestige then inception and then tenet where he's like really pushing that of like 
no, they can figure this out on their own. And I think with Tenet, it's a little bit much where there's a lot of people who I've talked to who have like <laughs> no idea what's going on. And like, maybe the audience is a little stupider than you think. No. <laughs> <laughs> I actually watched Tenet twice in the last two weeks. Nice. I tried. I didn't watch all the Nolan movies. I didn't watch the Batman movies, but I was trying to watch the Mindbender. So I watched Memento. I watched uh, Insomnia, actually, which is... Oh, I love Insomnia. I think Insomnia is Nolan's least good film, and it's still pretty good. It's just right, con- right. <laughs> conventionally good. You think Following um, is better than Insomnia? No, Ooh. no. I mean, I mean, like big time. Okay. okay. You know, theatrical release. Okay. So second least good. But <laughs> Tenet, it was interesting. But I watched it for the first time with my dad and my brother, and both I think said they liked Tenet more than Inception, which blew my mind. Hmm. I think there's something to be said for, you know, we don't know what, what Tenet would have been in a normal year, obviously. Right. And, it, and there's sure. no way it would have been as different as Inception. But I think there's a certain level of satisfaction that comes from Tenet is much more, there's no ambiguity to the ending. I mean, it is it is very, everything's wrapped up. And so I think some people would appreciate that more. But mm-hmm. watching those and then watching this made me realize Nolan, yeah, has this idea that not only does he he holds the audience in high regard, but he also wants them to let go of certain things. He yeah. wants us to let go of the details, even though we think of him as such a detail oriented guy. He rushes through those details so we can get to the the plot. And I think a lot of times he doesn't really care. Tenet, the audio mixing was so grunge that you there are certain things you just don't catch, and he doesn't want you to catch everything. Mm-hmm. With this movie, I think the balance is perfect because I think you miss some of the details that don't actually matter. You can dig in later, but they don't actually matter. But you understand, I think, what's going on plot-wise. Whereas Tenet, it feels like you almost can't catch all the details and you're barely clinging to the plot. I mean, I've watched this Tenet three times now and every time it's like, what's happening? Like... <laughs> like you're barely holding on which is a it, it makes it a completely different experience i think it's tenet is halfway between memento which just does that all the way mm-hmm. on purpose and inception with memento you have to forget the ending to enjoy the movie again as much but you're hanging you barely can put the pieces together this i think you're you're along for the ride and you understand what's going on and i think this is a better balance tenet i enjoy the feeling of like barely clinging to it but you know, after three times, I should have a better understanding of what's going on, and I still have to watch YouTube videos. To under- like, the ending of Tenet is sloppy, I'll say. That's the mm. worst part of that. I don't know spoilers, but, like, the wor- ending of Tenet isn't clear what's going on, whereas you see so many shots of that van falling, it actually almost becomes a laugh line <laughs> in the movie, and you are very clear where you at, where things are and, and how it comes together. Mm. And when it comes together, it's glorious, and we're we're there for it. Yeah. We haven't been left behind by the movie, and mm-hmm. I think that that's an accomplishment in this movie because it's a lot of moving pieces. Yeah, and I like what you said. You know, it isn't about the details, so to speak. You're not meant to focus on okay, where did they go to talk to this guy who's an expert in this field to accomplish this task? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the important thing is we're assembling a team. We have this goal. You know, yeah. Um, and I just think like the the subtlety of everything is happening in these people's minds. You know, man on the street walks by and sees a bunch of people sleeping, isn't going to have any idea of what's going on, you know, in these multiple levels of consciousness. And, and that's just, uh, 
yeah, that that sticks out to me as being like revolutionary. I guess you know it's just the the, the reality of the dreamscape, and and uh, even though uh, it's not physical, it's very real. You know, mm-hmm. in that sense, and yeah, very cool. Yeah, I know that we've kind of talked about like I don't know the influence it had over our bubbles and that sort of thing what was it like you know for you and just like how to kind of impact i know you said that it was like kind of one of the first films that you did like research on of and like wanting to see and all that but like what else of how did it affect the zeitgeist in your area yeah it definitely was yeah one of the first movies that i that i was like interested in seeing and interested in the concept and um you know, I think that my, I'd look to, you know, my family or, or people that had seen movies already to tell me what a good movie was, so to speak. But this is the first time I really branched out on my own uh, and found something that I liked. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it was, it was a summer movie. So everyone was excited, you know, riding that high of summertime. And, uh, as you've already said, everyone in school, everyone in, in church, all, any social group really is discussing it. And, uh, trying to parse it. Um, I think that, uh, I guess, personally speaking, looking at the characters and the struggles they go through and trying to simultaneously, you know, speaking from the perspective of uh, Killian Murphy's character, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to let go of something and move forward, even though he doesn't, he doesn't really want to let go of the, uh, the memories of his dad and the the influence that his dad had on him and his life and his, um, but, but he needs to let go of that. And so it's this dichotomy of they're incepting this idea. They're trying to get something out of this guy, but at the same time, he kind of does need to let go of that and move on and recognize that, um, whether or not his father loved him, you know, he has a greater purpose beyond, being defined by his dad. And uh, I don't know, I just, it's kind of like, you know, I, I was coming of age when I mm. watched that movie. And so some of those concepts, I think, played into my own development of just, uh, yeah, what does it mean to, to hold on to things in the past, uh, to remember them, but also to let go and, and find the new horizon, so to speak. And mm-hmm. and I I think also just, you know, among my friends, that was the first movie I had seen where, Everyone has a different opinion. Everyone's trying to break down what they think it's you know, the meaning of the film, right. and and the uh, as we already said, the top at the end. You know, you heard everyone's theory about does it topple? Mm-hmm. Is it going to? Is he in the real world? Um, yeah, it it was just the discussion was so uh, vibrant around that movie that at the time, especially, and so that was really cool to be a part of that. You know, yeah, that's um, one of those that you you'll watch with with a future generation and be able to sort of share, like this is what the culture was like and the energy and the new decade. And um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Like on the rewatch for this one, I, my first thought was like, Oh my gosh, like someday whenever I have kids, I cannot wait to show this to them. Like, yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you guys remember the app? Yes. Oh, I had to bring this up. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. Oh, wait, okay, it's which app? Because so there's, good. there's two apps. There's the one that just takes the picture and then shows like the city on the no, skyline. No, 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 that's no, no. kind of lame. The dream, the music app, the dreamscape, the dream. Okay. Thinking about the app almost puts me in, you know, Inception's almost timeless other than the, the, the little music thing that they have playing the <laughs> yeah, music the instead MP3 of a player. smartphone. <laughs> but other than that, it's timeless on purpose, you know, I think. But this, the app, 
puts me in exactly where it was in time. Yes. And this app was anyone that doesn't know this is early on in the app store when it was a really exciting time with you know smartphones every movie had an app every movie had an app but like there was new apps coming out all the time and every movie app was so dumb they're so lame right it's just a website and then this inception app comes out and it's you have to put headphones on and then it takes the sound from the ambient sound and like turns it into a dreamscape and you there was badges you could win mm-hmm. by doing certain things and one of them involved being in Africa yes. which i hated because i could never get that badge <laughs> but like depending on the time of day or like and you can't download the app anymore so i was trying to find it it was amazing it was mm-hmm. such an amazing interactive acoustic experience it's hard to describe yes. it was it was magic I'm so glad that you brought that up because I was really nervous that neither of you had used it. John, I literally listened to that for like the entirety of high school. Exactly like you said, where there's just music cues in the movie where I'm like just taken back to like my art class in high school because I was Mm -hmm. like listening to it while working on an Mm -hmm. art project. And then and it it, so like you said, there's like different like sections of like because the 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 dreamscape is like the city, like an overview of the city. And it has like little blocks cut out of it. And then you would earn some of them. Like you said, one of them was you had to be in Africa to get it. The other one was like, use the app while going over 30 miles an hour or something like that. Just looking at the app icon is giving me like nostalgia. Yes. Oh my God. And I still have it on my old iPod, which I thought was here, but I don't know where it is. So I I have to find it because I would love to use that app again. It's preserved. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many hours I spent using that thing because it would mix, like infuse the, the audio around you with like the score of the film and it would just change so much that it just like whenever they say like the the tagline for the app was like the soundtrack for your life and it was so true because like I literally listened to it all the freaking time and it was amazing like especially the one that like infused it with time like the the song at the end oh I I think there's literally (laughs) a stint where I had it going for like four hours and so I had like four hours of like backtracked like audio just kind of like coming in and out at points infused with Hans Zimmer's score and holy crap that was the best thing ever no app will ever beat that this app has been broken for like five years at least Mm. I mean this thing you can't you oh it's a relic so sad it is I was just I, I was trying to find it again too and whenever I saw that it wasn't on the app store I was devastated it also speaks to, I mean, for me, it speaks to the time in, in history, so to speak, because I was 15 and I had a dumb phone. And so the app store was not a part of my oh, life. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> yeah, at the time at least. But no, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool. There's, okay, I'm going to get emotional here, actually. My bank is dying. My, I have this bank called Simple, uh-huh. and it's an app. <laughs> it's a bank app. You're going to laugh at me. So back in those days, it was like from 2010 to 2015, it was like every every week you could go in the app store and like find a new app that solved a problem that had never mm-hmm. been solved right. before, right? And as a designer, I mean, it was just so exciting that people were like creating the perfect version of apps, right? And my banking app was one simple. I mean, it let you – it was a banking app that like let you uh, automatically save. It would take your – paycheck and you could like automatically save into buckets and like everything was automated you could save for things over a period of time i mean it was the quality design that you get with financial planning apps built into your bank itself it got rid of that gap and it 
launched around the same time and it just died. They got bought out. And so I've been thinking about like that was an era where it, it felt like you could solve every problem in the world with apps. Mm-hmm. As stupid as that sounds. Like it, we thought technology would solve everything. And obviously things have gotten – that is not how it went in our world. But at the time it was so such a time of optimism and like I think this movie is very much of that time of like technology will allow – you know, now I'm just like, man – this time I, I was the most skeptical I've ever watched this movie. I still enjoyed it, but I was like, man, none of this makes sense. Mm. You know, like the dream <laughs> technology. Small aside, and I'm the movie sort of broke a little bit this time I watched it when I realized something very small that sort of breaks the logic of the whole movie, which is they don't need the technology once they go down one level. What do you mean? You're dreaming. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that they need to pull a suitcase out of 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 a cupboard and like have the compound down there, it's all made up. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, yeah completely. Yeah, it doesn't like exist down there. It's literally just something they can just. It's like a projection of the process mm-hmm. in which they are currently in. I guess. I mean, that'd be my assessment of it. No, but it, I mean, it does sort of break the movie because there is no reason for the further levels to get more and more time without the technology because that's the idea is you're dreaming right mm-hmm. why would you dream like dreaming within a dream it's just a dream anyway so this movie <laughs> this time i was like wait this whole thing doesn't make sense i had never thought of it <laughs> that's sort of my cynicism now back then when you watch it, it was like oh man yeah you could have this thing then you could have shared dreaming and you didn't question it because this idea that technology ultimately would do all mm-hmm. of these things was just part of the culture and i think this this represents that maybe app technological optimism better than maybe any other app, any other movie mm-hmm. at the time. Wow, that's interesting. I haven't even thought about that. Like, I, maybe I, I feel like at the time, at least, I was thinking, I wasn't thinking about it in those terms. But maybe now, as you've said, you know, going back, you're looking at it from a different lens. And, yeah. yeah, that's cool. Well, I think that's the brilliant of like his structure for the film, where you're. You know, you don't even care. It's like, oh, what? These people can all, like, share the same dream? That's not what you're thinking at all. Like, he's smart enough that he puts in, like, a mental puzzle in there where you're not questioning the logic because you're trying to still figure out how things work. So your mind isn't going over, like, wait, that wouldn't make sense in that. That wouldn't do this. Like, you're just trying to figure out, okay, like, so if they're in this dream, then that works like this and time is like that now. And, like, you're trying to figure out that puzzle instead of, like, the logic puzzle, which is a smart way of doing things, too. Yeah. All, almost all of Nolan's films exist in a universe where everyone is logical. The yes. base, the assumption of humans is that we are logical beings. And then something's broken. And usually it's emotion or regret or whatever, right? And that's what's keeping someone from being that perfect logical being. And, and so the movie sort of explores how his guilt breaks his ability and like i think that's why it breaks for me now a little bit is now i'm much more cynical and think well everyone's irrational you know everyone's people are not basically rational human beings but there's a certain assumption of that in all of his films he nolan i think sort of assumes everyone thinks like he does and, and not everyone does but it's the baseline for everyone in his in his universes that he builds typically. Mm-hmm. And it's like emotion is the the burden that everyone's trying to shake in order to become that higher level of functionality, I guess. Mm-hmm. 
But at the same time, yeah, th- this film really is so packed with emotion. Uh, I think you said it, Creed, that you know if if he's if Nolan's considered to be somebody who doesn't always include enough emotion, this definitely like swung to the other side in some in some way at least. You know, providing a lot of like relatable points with both uh, Killian Murphy's character. I can't remember his name. Uh, uh, Fisher. Uh, Fisher. Fisher. Yes. Yes. And then Cobb. Uh, both dealing with some pretty deep-seated emotional issues, I guess. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. I actually have a question for you guys. Do you think... I mean, Fisher's catharsis is fake, right? I mean, it's the movie makes it... You feel the emotion of it, but, like... Right. They took away his only good relationship and replaced it with a fake one, mm-hmm. basically, right? They did a bad thing to him. But also, but also what they were saying, too, was what Eames says in that point, because they're like, wait... I think Ariadne says, like, oh, you're going to destroy his only good relationship. And he's like, yeah, no, yeah. we're going to repair his relationship with, for, with his father and expose, like, who his uncle truly is. Because I think there's this un- underside of things where they're saying that Browning, and even in that scene that you actually see him, like, the only scene where you see him as he actually mm-hmm. is, I think he's trying to work things through so that he basically takes over the company. Eames definitely believes that that guy is is a bad guy Mm -hmm. the dad definitely doesn't think that way about his son you want to believe it and that's the whole thing we don't know we don't know but i mean this whole movie is basically i think the argument's been made that inception is really about movie making or storytelling and it's about the deception of like you really you just want to believe what you want to believe with the with the catharsis whether it's true or not you know yeah i feel like it's it's almost a duality in that it seems like they did subvert that relationship between him and Tom Berenger's character at Browning. Mm-hmm. Um, if that was a good relationship, yeah, they kind of twisted it around on him. Yeah. But at the same time, he probably needed to find his own path and not feel so reliant on those guys defining who he was as a person. And so he kind of gets to leave the plane at the end, sort of a new with a new take on life, but... If that relationship was good with Browning, then they definitely kind of ruined. <laughs> but also the thing that I wonder about that, too, is I don't think that that's what's going to happen because like they've shown with like some of the other characters, most of them can't remember what the dream was once they get out of it. And Fisher isn't trained oh, to do yeah. that. And because whenever they go down to the second level and Cobb is saying, like, you know, try to remember where you were. He's like, I, t- I can't like we are in a van. I kind of remember something. So the idea is going to stick with him, but all the stuff that his uncle yeah. or his godfather did isn't going to. So I think they'll still be That's fine. That's a good point. That's a good point, yeah. I was very cynical this time, and I was like, yeah, the sequel is he goes to the board, and he's like, I want to split the company up. And they're like, yeah, no. And then they keep, <laughs> they keep the company together. <laughs> it's, it's the scene in Batman Begins, the board meeting in the scene in Batman yeah. Begins. It's like, you're outvoted. Like, you're not- <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I kind of want to... Uh, shift this a little bit more to even kind of focus more on Nolan because I think that this is the movie that really sets him up as like a household name. He had kind of been building that up with Batman Begins and Dark Knight, but here on out, everyone knows who Christopher Nolan is. He kind of, it's like a Spielberg sort of thing where it's like, even if you're not into film, even if you don't know movies, you still would recognize Christopher Nolan. This is where it goes from. He's the guy that did the Dark Knight, which was amazing Mm -hmm. to I'm going to see his new movie when it's in theaters because he did Inception. Yeah. Yeah. What's he going to do next? That was definitely my impression 
going, you know, I was in my second year of high school, I guess. And it was like, yeah, whatever he does next, I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm, I'm going to be there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, cool. even even nowadays, it's like any movie he, put, he puts out, I'll watch it. And even though he isn't like, again, for the longest time, I, this is like, this movie was just like at the top of my favorites for everything. It was my favorite movie. Christopher Nolan was my favorite director. Hans Zimmer was my favorite composer. It was my favorite score. Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> yeah. was my favorite actor. It was my favorite performance. You know, like yeah. literally every this movie just like defined my whole like taste in like high school and throughout part of college. And I can't tell you how many times I watched it throughout like high school. Like there's probably like a couple months where I watched it like at least once a week and just kept on going back to it over and over again. And I hit college. And it just kind of stopped. Like I watched it once throughout college. There was just still so much awe and so much mysticism around it, even though I'd seen it a million times that I would just get sucked in with it that I think I haven't watched it since then because I was so nervous that I'm like, not that it's not going to be as good as I remember it. It's just not going to give me that same feeling that it gave me like watching it way back when. There's a significant portion of my, my life after this where like, whether someone liked Inception or not was like a big part mm-hmm. of like whether I'd be friends with them or not. Yeah, like that sure. was a big clue. Like we're going to be friends. Like if we could talk about this movie mm-hmm. and it was a movie you could talk about and analyze and, and, and welcomed you obsessing over it. Right mm-hmm. now it's all, you know, superhero movies yeah. and, and extended universes and stuff. But this was a single standalone movie. And so especially for like film lovers, I think it, invited everyone to be a film critic you know do film criticism and and dive into the the screenplay and everything and it was just so enjoyable because that it got everyone talking about this movie like it was a film class Mm -hmm. you know and it was the first film i ever watched that encouraged me to take something away or to you know sort of dwell on this for the next you know, the next week or months or what have you. And I had a, a teacher in high school that would always encourage us, kind of as per the philosophy of the, your podcast, take away something from what you watch and, and see it as uh, a basis for conversation or for exploring new ideas. Mm. Um, and this is the first film I ever watched that really kind of jump-started that, I think, for me. Yeah, uh, past guest of the... Uh, the show Michael Kelly and I you know we were best friends in high school we would just talk about this movie nonstop. and this to me was one of the first movies that I watched where I was like I want to make movies after watching it and like just one of those really big inspirations for me and Christopher Nolan was kind of that guiding force even though I wasn't allowed to watch all of his movies where I just looked at his stuff I'm like that's how I want to make movies and Michael and I made I mean he was the one that directed and like wrote them but like together just you know working on stuff made two movies or two short films in high school that were like almost kind of plagiarized from his his movies as well <laughs> but i remember like everyone in school like looking at michael and being like oh my gosh he's like the christopher nolan of our school like he's gonna go off and do all of these things and <laughs> that's awesome um, yeah because there was like one of them that was like the exact same thing as memento and then another one that was like kind of memento but also like donnie darko ish and all that sort of stuff so just like kind of like the whole the whole mental game of stuff and so that was like just one of the huge connecting points for michael and i's friendship of just talking and analyzing through his films and especially inception i mean we would just go on and on for hours about it and you know i credit this movie for really sparking a lot of that interest in me because this was like the year that i started getting involved in film classes in high school 
and a lot of that came from him. So, like, I am always going to be eternally grateful for this movie. It's not my favorite movie anymore, but I think even in the first, like, our introduction episode to this show, I think I list Inception as, like, in my top three or something like that, which I don't think I would put it there anymore, unfortunately. Again, watching it this last time, I think part of it was because I was being so analytical for this episode, but I was also just like, it just doesn't give me that feeling that it used to give me. It's a gateway drug. Yes. yes. (laughs) Nice. I see that. Yeah. Kind of gets your wheels turning in a certain direction and then Mm -hmm. take off from there. And then pretty soon film is the only way you can dream. (laughs) Right. My dad does listen to this podcast and I'm going to throw him under the bus a little bit. (laughs) Just a little bit. And because he didn't love the ambiguity of the ending. For years, I thought that that was what he didn't like. But talking to him recently, he didn't dislike the movie like aggressively. But uh, what he didn't like was this idea that people would rather be in the dreamscape. That's a dark world, actually, that they live in where people are addicted to it. But it's like, uh, uh, that sort of happened. So, like, that's that happened to everybody. And it wasn't fun. So, that that part of it has taken on a darker tone too, I think, as as the world has changed around this movie. You know, yeah. of course, when we're talking about this film, we have to talk about like the technical aspect of it as well, because I think that's what I was so blown away by after watching it this time. Because I'm, you watch it the first time and you're like, wow, this is like really crazy what they're doing, and then just like watching it now, I'm like, this is just a technical masterpiece. Like the more and more I read about it, I'm like, this is insane that he was able to get all of this stuff done and just do so much through this. Like it's really astounding how much he's able to tackle with it because to me, this feels like his biggest film. I know that there are people who are like, Oh, dark Knight rises or Tenet or Dunkirk or that sort of thing. But this to me, there's just something about this that like the scope of it. I mean, it's literally in the plot where he's like, it's just like the construct of the mind. So I knew we had to do a huge budget for it. Because the mind should be limitless and you should be able to feel like this movie can go anywhere. And it does. And by everywhere, you mean L.A., a hotel, and (laughs) an awesome set piece at the end. (laughs) I do think there's a little bit of an imbalance in the... the in the settings, but yeah. they really use that hotel really well. That the both hallway fight scenes are spectacular, obviously, mm-hmm. and to do that physically with physical set design is just astounding. Yeah, and it being dreams is an excuse to just CG the crap out of mm-hmm. it, and you just refuse to do that at all, and it's amazing. Mm-hmm. I get what you mean with like the whole limited thing because that was the thing where I struggled with watching it, uh, basically up until this last time where I was like. I never have dreams as cohesive as that or like nothing is like that real in my dreams. And I mean, it's something that they literally say in there where they're like something along the lines of like they structure the dreams like close to reality. So that way it can like trick the brain more. And that's like how it makes it easier to do inception and to plant those thoughts. And it is because you have to make it feel real. And the points throughout like whenever Ariadne is testing things and like flipping things over, he's like, this is really cool, but my mind is going to know that something is up. And I think what their, the rationale is like, if it's an individual, your dreams can just be as like crazy as you want. But whenever you involve multiple consciousness as consciousness as (laughs) you have to 
you have to make it more realistic so that way it tricks your brain and like they you know the little diagram that he shows of like cutting in between the two the two parts of the mind i think is to me kind of brings it home now Oh yeah, and the L.A. with rain is a very fantastic <laughs> yeah, place. That never happens. Yeah, that never happens. I mean, I love the action set pieces. I have no problem. I'm not criticizing the settings. I I always thought the the last one was a little like it's just strange. That's the one where they're sort of parodying themselves because they're like, we're gonna go down and steal. Th- that's them portraying what they think an average person would think they do for their job because they're they're fake going on a heist with him. But it's always funny that it's like L.A., a hotel maybe in L.A., and then just a hotel or, or a hospital inside a military base on a mountainside, <laughs> like somewhere. It, I don't even know. Like it's so fantastic. Um, Speaking of that, that hallway fight scene, someone just mentioned. Oh man! I can't remember who, but uh, do we know how they accomplished that? Because I mm-hmm. don't. But I'd be curious if you guys knew. Yeah. How that yeah. Oh yeah. It's amazing. You've asked the right person. Yeah. It's amazing because oh, this is this is just the thing I do love about Christopher Nolan is like how much he fights for like <laughs> not using CG and all that sort of stuff. And I think sorry, a little anecdote beforehand, but I think the thing that's so funny of like us watching these sorts of movies now and just being like, "Oh my gosh, like how on earth did he like do this sort of thing?" whenever a lot of the stuff that he does is kind of like to like the umpteenth degree and with a huge budget kind of like simple camera tricks or that sort of thing or just like stuff that you would be not used to but would make more sense like practically in a previous time because of like 2001 you know of like the centrifuge that they Mm -hmm. use for that and for the Mm -hmm. special effects for that so like what they do for the hallway scene and it's really incredible they actually build two sets for it one of them which the rotating one is a hundred foot long replica of that set that's on a giant centrifuge that's just spinning around and around and they have one camera that's like nailed into the ground that spins along with the with the hallway but you know because of the perspective it makes it just look like they're spinning around and that sort of thing it's crazy you can find footage and pictures of it online it's amazing and like behind the scenes footage of like how they do it and Joseph Gordon-Levitt talks extensively about how painful and stressful it was because that scene is fine because, you know, you're not falling far. Whenever it cuts to the hotel room, like the actual room itself is actually way more dangerous because I was also on a centrifuge. And he's like, you know, if you're falling, if you fall from the other one, like you get behind, you're just kind of falling like seven, eight feet and you'll get bruised, but it's not going to hurt you. Like that other room, you can fall like 40 feet if you're not careful. And when the full length of the the bedroom is on end and that sort of thing. So that's how they do it is just like using those rotating things. And then for the zero gravity stuff, they built the same hallway, but facing upwards. And then Joseph Gordon-Levitt was on a wire rig hanging down into it because I that was the thing I remember being stunned by watching it the first time I was like I don't know how they managed to do the zero gravity stuff because it looks so good there's a funny story actually that goes along with this I'm pretty sure I still told this story in the last episode <laughs> or I'm gonna tell it again which is Creed and I were roommates in college and Creed would always be watching uh movies but also especially at a certain time of day I feel like you'd be watching Bonus the special features, features yeah. for these movies. Yeah, bonus features. And one time I walked in and 
you were watching this this stuff. You're talking about the two two things, and I had seen pictures, but I had never I never really understood the details of it. And like the line in the the thing was they were talking to one of the the cast crew crew members, and he's like, "Yeah, Christopher Christopher took, came to us and said, well, we want to film this scene." real like we want to make it real we have to build a set and he's like okay that's gonna be a big project and then they go on i mean that the whole i mean it's like its own special feature just for this scene Mm -hmm. right i mean it's a 30 i don't know 30 minutes of talking about how they did this um and and it was just so funny he's like yep we have to do this because chris wanted it and then they talked 30 minutes about how they did it and then the next week i walk in and he's watching the special feature for episode i think it was the phantom the or no it was no it was the uh new hope actually the whenever they added in the um oh it was yes the, no it's it's one of the prequel movies it's a better story if it's one of the prequel movies uh <laughs> well it's one of the prequel movies or one of the, you know cg star Wars movies and the, the, it was almost the exact same line same type of guy and they're like yeah uh george wanted this scene so we made it on a computer and then they just moved on to the next thing they just like it was so much quicker to build it with cg mm-hmm. and it's like yeah when you build it physically not only are you putting you're it forces you to put effort into it you, that's the physicality of this fight scene that i mean it's a great fight scene but oh, it could be amazing. an okay fight scene if it was if it was cg you know but the fit the realness of it is so the effort is obvious. Yeah, it is. I mean, honestly, just still one of the best fight scenes I've ever seen. Like, I've seen it a million times, and it gives me chills every time. And I'm still just completely blown away by it because it's just incredible. I mean, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt does a great job with it. And like you said, there's kind of a way where it could have been, like, cheap or easy. And the fact that they literally built this giant set, this giant centrifuge for, like, what, a minute? It's just crazy. And I think that's the thing I love about Nolan is just his audacity with the budget where there's all of this stuff where another director might be like, oh, I'm a little bit nervous. Maybe we'll just do this in CG. And he's like, nope, we're going to take a giant truck and add like a tractor frame onto it and then build a train on top of it and like go through each and every piece and add steel onto this part and then do all of this and like have it plow through a bunch of cars in downtown LA and just you know that could have easily been a CG shot and not cost nearly as much money or maybe it will who who knows nowadays but I feel like this movie could have been a fourth of the price easily with the settings that they have a fourth of the price and with all CG filling in the gaps and and it just wouldn't be the same, you know. Then you have source code, basically. Mm-hmm. Like, I like source code, but it's that type of movie is not. It doesn't have the impact mm-hmm. because you're so immersed in the world because it's so real. And it's kind of like you know, I just think about it in my own. I do a lot of 3D modeling and design, mm-hmm. and that's something that can be done in a matter of minutes. You know, you could mm-hmm. mock up something for someone to look at versus actually crafting it whether that be you know machining or or handcrafting something or assembling you know just the 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 physical obviously is going to take longer to to manifest but the payoff is so much greater mm-hmm. you know especially in an art form you know it's just yeah yeah there's so many just practical things in here that he does that i i love i love him just so much for that and even like the restaurant or the bar scene that they built that entire set on this giant rig to kind of slightly tilt it. And they're saying like, 
in the frame, it doesn't look like it's doing much, but they literally had to go through and screen all of the extras in the background because a third of the people who signed on to do it couldn't physically do it for that, like just tilting the set a bit. And I mean, it's literally just a minor piece of the thing where things tilt and then Leonardo DiCaprio is like, look at that. That's pretty weird. And then it goes back to normal. And like, you know, <laughs> all of that money for just like that little bit. <laughs> so good. The more I talk about it, the more I'm like, gosh, this movie is a masterpiece. Like, I've always gone back and forth between whether Dark Knight or Inception is his best movie. And I've kind of leaned more towards Dark Knight for most of the time. But now I'm like, oh, man, but Inception, just his technical craft is just so on point and so mind boggling all the stuff that he can do with it. I'm just still like, I th- I mean, I think it is going to be like one of those movies like 2001 where people are always going to be like, how did he do that? Like the van stuff, like all of them flipping around in the van. That's the part that I can't figure out how they did. Like the slow-mo of like all of their limbs kind of flinging around and all of that. It's crazy. It just I feel like it would just take a lot of, you know, I think about the set builders and then some of the people behind that. Like you have to have basically a custom machine built uh, or at least near custom machine built in order to achieve something like that, which is really cool, you know. This movie not only is is great by itself, but it it was such a success that I I really think it get in a decade that you know as we talk about as we talked about Endgame by the end of the decade you really have the Disney house style in in effect and overwhelming a lot of Hollywood film production. The other side of that coin is I do think Inception created space for a certain kind of director to have. Oscar-nominated type films that are self-contained stories that take technical risks. That mm-hmm. almost the technical risks are are the you know Gravity. I think is a type of movie that that can get made after this. Mm-hmm. And uh, Interstellar 19, too. Nineteen seventeen. Interstellar. Nineteen seventeen. Where in the past, before before Inception, people would say, you know, just just do the just do a World War One movie. Like, don't don't do one long take. That's kind of a gimmick, right? Mm-hmm. But this movie is so full of those sort of th- uh, filmmaker indulging overindulgence on on some of these things, like the set, you know, the tilting set. That I think it proved that that can make a really powerful movie watching experience. That's somewhere between your your you know your best picture winner type, you know, uh, prestige film and your standard tentpole Hollywood blockbuster. There's mm-hmm. something in the middle that can still make a lot of money, but really let the, the filmmaker shine um, that existed in this decade. I think in a large part, because Inception proved that it's not as risky as a lot of people, I think probably thought Yeah, with spending that money. One of the things I've kind of, I kind of came to the conclusion of while watching this movie is, I mean, this movie is sci-fi, you know, and looking back just kind of on box office and like the biggest movies of all time it's like a big majority is like sci-fi stuff with like exception to like titanic and jaws and that sort of thing but like i guess i guess more like 70s onward where that's really kind of been a lot of the heavy hitters and there's a lot of like underrepresentation of sci-fi films on in like the oscars or like a lot of the more prestigious awards where like yeah you know that shouldn't be in there but I think it's like 
a balance between two things. I think it can either be a hard sci-fi with normal visuals like Inception, where there's like a lot of like mental work that has to go into and a lot of world building and a lot of technicality, but you're also like quote unquote in the real world. Like there's no aliens. There's no, you know, things like that. You're working with like humans. Or you can do like low sci-fi with like exotic visuals, stuff like Avatar or Star Wars, where it is like aliens everywhere, spaceships, all that sort of stuff, but there's no like hard and fast rules that you have to hold on to. There's almost another, you know, hard sci-fi, soft sci-fi dichotomy. Typically, you know, it's the hard sci-fi that wins the awards, but it's the soft sci-fi that people love. Mm -hmm. But there's almost like, this is almost feels like a a third kind where, and it's a particularly Nolan thing to just sort of, sci-fi is, you know, talking about the era of, of, the decade of of tech, right? You you sort of invent something mm-hmm. and you b- add it to our world, and then you sort of go with that. It's not trying to guess what the future is going to be like. I mean, that is 2010 for all intents and purposes, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, with this added technology, and so I don't even know what the term would be, but like this this style of sci-fi where you're just adding one thing to our world so that you can tell a story that couldn't mm-hmm. be told before. Mm-hmm. Like Looper. I, you know, her, her, mm-hmm. Looper. Looper is a great example, right? It's no di- no different than than our world. A little, They show a little bit of world building, but it's really not that different. Um, her is similar where mm-hmm. it's the future, but it's more exploring our world, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, AI has gone space, way further. Yeah, space is space is not part of these types of sci-fi. You know, mm-hmm. it's all on Earth, and you you're not relying on the typical like okay time travel or okay mm-hmm. uh, teleporting or like you know cliche sci-fi space things like that. Ex it's Machina. Add one, Ex Machina. Yeah, that's a great yeah. Where you're you're really saying you're exploring oh, it's almost you're exploring hard sci-fi is typically about exploring the human condition yes this is almost exploring the tech and seeing how it affects us oh well i was just thinking like you know you're adding something you're taking reality and adding just enough sci-fi or sort of wonder to it that it feels like part of it's still grounded in what we know and experience already, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're exploring a specific idea to make it more rich. I think that's mm-hmm. that's what draws me in personally, I guess. Yeah. And I think that a lot of his original ideas for this was kind of more along exploring the condition or at least exploring like the mental state of things. And then I think somewhere along the way, kind of some of it came in of like, wow, you could do some really cool stuff with this which I really admire and then like adding in the emotional base as well. But I would have I would have been fascinated to read what his kind of pitch was for like the horror movie version of this. Also, Christopher Nolan mov- making a horror movie to me is just a crazy idea that I can't even <laughs> picture but I would love to watch. It would just it would still yeah. be a heist film. <laughs> yeah. But it's it, they're actually technically doing the opposite of a heist cuz they're planting something. They're not stealing something. Sure. Mm, that's, yeah. That's yeah. Oh, it's interesting. You're talking about, you know, I, I almost think it's, it's closer to it's movies finally getting to where a lot of hard, hard sci-fi was in literature. Yes. Like you in the seventies. To, yeah. Total recall is a great movie. I love total recall. Oh, the original. Amazing. But mm. 
But the book is much more about exploring this one additional thing, right? Mm-hmm. And when you make an 80s, you know, 80s sci-fi, you have to do all this fantastic stuff and have it on Mars and all these weird creatures, right? Because of Star Wars. And it's almost like we're getting back into, okay, we can really have this this literary version of sci-fi where, where we're, we're not doing all the world building. We're not mm-hmm. doing all of the uh, fantastic stuff added on. To make toys out of yeah you know? i also gotta say that i think that this is just one of like the sleekest and like coolest movies ever in the sense that like everyone in this movie is cool like there's no one who's just like <laughs> kind of milling about like oh guys i don't know how to do the stream sort of stuff but everyone's like I, I know my job i got it i'm good at my job i'm cool and just like everyone is so like <laughs> even keel in that and just so suave like everyone's wearing designer suits and like slicked back hair and like it's i think it's oh, this yes. like this world that nolan imagines where he's like i just wonder what rich people are like maybe it's really cool you know and there's like and i think that's explored <laughs> in like tenet and as well where he just thinks oh, like yeah. the lives of like these rich suave people like he wanted to do like corporate espionage was like his his idea yeah. behind this and i think and in a lot of his movies are pieces of the Bond film that he wants to make. And I think there's a lot of that in this. And there's a lot of that in Tenet as well, where there's just like... Has there ever been a director more obvious for a franchise than Christopher Nolan and Bond? I mean, it right. has to happen at right. some point. It has to. <laughs> that would yeah. be awesome. It, it would be the perfect... Uh, I mean, this already has enough Bond flavor to mm-hmm. it to really get you to envision what it would be like, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, Cobb kind of feels like Bond in Casino Royale. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. Absolutely. It lets us actually see Tom Hardy's face this time. It's great. Dude, I love <laughs> Tom actually Hardy hear what he's in this saying. movie. I love Tom Hardy in just about everything, oh, yes. but, man, this movie really turned me on to him, and he is great in this movie. But yeah, going back to like the coolness and the sleekness, like I think that this is probably his best shot film as well. Like, I mean, they they won the Oscar for cinematography for it, but I think it's just like Wally. And he's even said that this is like his favorite work of his is on Inception. Just I think they take a lot more risks with like the framing of things and a lot more inventiveness with this, where he said on Batman, he kind of regrets some of the choices he made on Batman Begins because he felt like it was too stale or like too kind of like, classic hollywood movie instead of like what he wanted to do and so for this one they're just like we're just going to go all out and do whatever the heck we want to do and just the lighting is just so on point and they have to have like giant lights for like a lot of the slow-mo scenes like the scene of him getting of leonardo dicaprio getting dunked at the beginning i think they're shooting that at like a thousand frames a second or something like that they have these giant like 18k lights like 15 feet away from him just blasting him because whenever you're shooting at that high of a frame rate it just sucks in light like you need so much light for those sorts of scenes and yeah so they have to do a lot of that extreme sort of stuff to kind of make up for the technology that they're using and it's so effective i know we also talked about it a bit beforehand but we definitely got to bring up the score because i think this is maybe my favorite hans zimmer score Definitely, definitely. Either this or Interstellar. You know, just so good. I love Hans Zimmer, but the the thing that sort of the stereotype is that you can't hum it, you know? It's not John Williams. Mm. You don't get it stuck in your head. Oh, my gosh. Partially because we both use the app that is designed (laughs) to get it stuck in your head. But 
uh, so, so many of these songs get stuck in your head. Time, mm-hmm. the end, the end from when he wakes up on the airplane to the end of the film is just spectacular. Mm-hmm. It's a spectacular song. It's perfect. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely his best work. Yeah, the dream is collapsing. That's another great track. Whenever I was re-listening to that, the one. the album of this again, I was like, "Yep, I I know this song. Like all of these." pieces by heart you know all of them are just so ingrained in right. my mind you know i i talked about nolan being uh kind of cemented in my mind as someone to look for for his upcoming films you know after i mm-hmm. saw inception and then i if you know for whatever reason uh, uh, hans zimmer is just like inextricably linked to nolan in my mind like you know mm-hmm. i always imagined them uh doing projects together i know it's not always the case but yeah for me that was like kind of adjacent to to that was was looking out for Hans Zimmer uh uh productions so yeah yeah this really turned me on to Hans Zimmer as well and I mean he's one of my favorite composers um I actually have this funny story about uh the soundtrack for this film because as as I said you know I was obsessed with this movie I was obsessed with the score and you know I used the Inception app a lot but I was just like yearning for more. And I was just like looking up one day, like I was like, I should just like buy the CD of the soundtrack. So I'm looking it up and I'm like, I wonder if there's like a deluxe version. And so I type in something along the lines of like Inception deluxe version, Inception soundtrack deluxe version. <laughs> and sure enough, up pops the CD on some website. I can't remember what it was. It wasn't <laughs> eBay or Amazon or anything like that, but it was like, inception the complete soundtrack and i was like oh my gosh and so i go to the site and it has like two cds and like 35 tracks or something like that i'm like this is amazing like this is incredible and so i buy the cd which uh, i think it was somewhere in europe that it was like the cd was from or something and it was like 20 bucks or something like that and i get it and like i'm looking at the cd and just kind of like the um the slip cover thing like it's a legit case it's like legit cds but like the slip cover which is like the the poster of like the back of Cobb with the water at his like knees him holding the gun in the cityscape forward and there's just like something off about it there's like a tint on it the red lettering is kind of like orangish and all that but sure enough i play the cds and it's like yeah, I mean, there's more music, but I think it's, I mean, it's definitely, looking back on it now, it's definitely not legit. Like, I thought it was back then. I'm like, how could a CD not be legit? I'm pretty sure what they did was they went in and how just like... How could a CD... <laughs> their own flavor to I was in high school, game. man. Well, no, I think what they did was they went into, like, the Blu-ray or the DVD and they just took out, like, the score tracks and, like, just like the raw score from like some of the scenes and then there's just like some of the trailer music in there i tried i i still have it like i i uploaded it to like google play way back then as well because i use that as well and so i still have it like on my like virtual library and so i was kind of like listening through some of it and i'm like it's still good quality it's it's just a mystery like i wish i had the cd like the cd sit in a box in arkansas but i wish i had it here to kind of dig through and figure out what the heck that thing was because it's so weird yeah. <laughs> it's a gem it's one of a kind 
It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I know. I mean, I think it said something on there's like one of 500. And I was like, wow, I'm getting a good deal. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Guys, I I have to admit something. It has nothing to do with what you're talking about. But okay. the circle <laughs> nature of the CD, I'm a little ashamed to say that for the for basically until I watched it, maybe this time or maybe it was last time I realized, uh, I thought Ariadne, when he tells her you need to make a puzzle that I what I've whatever it is like you have 30 seconds to make a puzzle it takes me a minute to solve or whatever mm-hmm. it is I I thought I thought she just drew a circle and that was like a clever like see it's a maze you can't get out <laughs> and it takes and him it a minute like, oh, to realize no. I don't think I can solve this <laughs> And he's just because he kind of like moves his pen to like find what point to end. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was like a clever thing, like you need to think outside the box by just you know okay. trapping me in a circle. But she does make a she does make a maze. It's a good maze. She's just <laughs> making a good maze very quickly. But I, I yeah. thought there was like a cl- clever troll trolly nature to what she did but you know it's actually the maze that ariadne used to get uh perseus away from the minotaur in greek right folklore uh, and all that yeah because ariadne she gets people out of mazes nice. i didn't even make that connection wow that's amazing don't I? I looked that up on like imdb trivia when i was like 14 so don't oh no no that no that oh, okay Gotcha. That was a big no. That was a big part of the whole like he's he's asleep still mm-hmm. theory was her character was sent she is sent in to get him out, which doesn't make any sense because that doesn't happen and that's not anything to do with the character what the character mm-hmm. is saying to him. But whatever. But that was a big thing back in the early days on the internet. That was a theory. Oh, okay. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. Have you seen the footage of Michael Caine saying that he is, he's in reality? He says, "I'm only in the real world," which mm-hmm. is it doesn't mean anything. Well, he's well because he talks to Christopher <laughs> Nolan. He's like, "I I was about to do a Michael and Caine impression, but I don't think I can do it that well." Um, but <laughs> he's he's like, you know, I like the script, but I'm just kind of confused by it. Like what? what is a dream and what isn't a dream? And Christopher Nolan says to him, okay, I'll let you know. Whenever you're in the real world, so whenever you're on screen, you're in reality. Whenever you're not on screen, oh, they're in a dream. Mm-hmm. And he's in the last shot. So again, oh, not like that's the I never even, finale, oh, okay. but yeah. That goes towards my theory that I don't think, I don't think Nolan was expecting the level of, conspiracy theories that yeah. were going to come from this you know yeah well, well, sure. there's some ambiguity but i don't think he thought people would be like he's definitely asleep mm-hmm. <laughs> like and one of the other things that i picked up on this last time that i thought was like really good is i think that Cobb actually has two totems technically i mean the other one isn't really a totem in the physical sense but i guess like another sanity trick is and he, he kind of like alludes to it throughout the dialogue where I always thought whenever he's like, I can't see my kids' faces, I, I always thought that meant like he couldn't remember them or that sort of thing. But I think he literally oh. keeps himself from seeing his kids' faces so that that's the only thing that's holding him to reality is seeing their faces. And like at the end, whenever he's like, 
you know, I have to go and see my kids' faces again. And that that's kind of like his other totem that he uses to stay sane and all that throughout all of it. Right. Before we finish, I do want to make an interesting point that made me laugh this time, which is if in this universe, in this world that he's built, there are two instances of <laughs> of inception that have occurred. One required them to go three levels deep and create all these levels of deception and then they had to convince him to convince himself to convince himself that his father really cared about him and the other one involved breaking into a safe and spinning a top yeah <laughs> like it was pretty easy <laughs> like like he's like it's doable i've done it before but like it wasn't that hard it was pretty easy yeah for him to do that. that's funny which I think the ending, like you said, John, is very effective and very good. And reading through the script, I was like, they were really smart to trim out a lot of dialogue in there because there's just a lot of stuff that just kind of doesn't really work within the scene and all that. And I think that's from like the actors working with them and maybe it was just stuff on the cutting room floor. But I think we don't often think enough to editing and just decisions throughout the filmmaking process of how much the script can ch- kind of change. So I kind of want to read a bit from the script of the ending, like scene between Maul and Cobb and Ariadne on like the top of the house in limbo, because it does not work anywhere near as well as what's in the film. Okay. So I'm, I'm just going to read it off of here. Maul says, so certain of your world of what's real. Do you think he is points at Cobb or do you think he's as lost as I was? Cobb says, I know what was real. What's real. Maul says, what are the distinguishing characteristics of a dream? Mutable laws of physics? Tell that to the quantum physicist. Reappearance of the dead? What about heaven and hell? Persecution of the dreamer? The creator? The messiah? They crucified Christ, didn't they? Cobb, I know it's real. Maul, no creeping doubts, not feeling persecuted, Dom. Chased around the globe by anonymous corporations and police forces, the way the projections persecute the dreamer. Maul puts her hand on his face, pitying. Maul, admit it, Dom, you don't believe in one reality anymore so choose choose your reality like i did choose to be here choose me and then Cobb, rising in anger i have chosen maul our children i have to get back to them because you left them you left us it's so much worse yeah think if that happened right before feel right you know what that sounds like Hmm. that sounds like a zack schneider film (laughs) martha (laughs) that that sounds like uh Lex Luthor in Batman vs. Superman. Yeah, it does. (laughs) Well, we should wrap it up, but I also have to give a shout out to the sound design for this movie because I think it's some of the best sound design I've ever seen in a film It's or listened to in a film. It's incredible. The amount of stuff that they're able to tie back, the smashing of the glass and just all of that sort of stuff. It goes so unnoticed, but it's so integral to the film. It's amazing. Just had to put that out there. Absolutely. Next time he does a movie like this, he should have clear audio. Clear crisp audio <laughs> clear and crisp perfectly balanced yeah no masks over people's faces <laughs> no uh no subtitles necessary to uh to comprehend oh my gosh um, <laughs> yep luke any any last Maybe. thoughts or impressions this is one of my brother's favorite films um that we've watched many times together and so mm. i think it holds a special place in my heart too of just uh i don't know what he would consider his gateway film into uh, that really sparked his passion uh, for films, mm. but I think this is one that I'll always remember watching together and, and discussing just the way the music made us feel and uh, mm. just theories about the notion of reality and, and the dream space and 
yeah, I don't yeah. know. It holds a special place in my in my memory. Mm. Are you guys ready to move on to trivia and challenge? Let's do it. Yes. That that didn't sound like a fully sure yes. <laughs> that did not sound certain. <laughs> I'm ready. I was trying to think of a joke about dreams, but okay. dreams you, aren't funny. He's so. still he's still thinking. I can hear the wheels turning. Yeah, yeah, he's still thinking about it. <laughs> Sorry, there's I, I literally right after watching Inception, watched an episode of Bob's Burgers, and there's a part whenever Linda walks up to Bob, <laughs> and Linda's just like. Bob, I've been thinking, and Bob just turns there. He's like, "Linda, if it's about Inception, we're never gonna figure it out." <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. So it's just amazing that that happened right after watching it. Okay, onward. Right. Inescapable. Inesca- yes. Question number one. So Nolan is famous for using IMAX and bringing IMAX to the feature film format. Which of Nolan's films did not have any IMAX, IMAX sequences in it? A, The Prestige, Ooh. B, The Dark Knight Rises, C, Inception, or D, The Dark Knight? Uh, the Prestige, final answer. I'm going to say Prestige as well. Yeah. yeah. Incorrect. I'm it is actually Inception. Sure. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, really? Really? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. They decided not to shoot okay. any of Inception on IMAX because they wanted to do mostly handheld, and the IMAX cameras were too big and heavy to do with that. Oh, um, yeah. And the Prestige, they did like a special effects test on with like Christian Bale and that sort of thing on IMAX. And right, like, this looks great. Let's keep on doing this and used it for the Dark Knight. All right. Okay. Question number two. Wait, was it in the film? I'm pretty sure it was. They said oh, okay. there's an interview with Wally Pfister where he talks about them using it on there. So question number two. Hans Zimmer brought on the guitarist from which band for the soundtrack of this film? A, The Smiths, B, Queen, C, The Kinks, or D, The Buggles? I'm going to say Queen. Brian, is that Brian May, right? Mm -hmm. I think that this sounds like something he'd go for. I'm going to say The Kinks. Both are incorrect. It's actually A, The Smiths. It's a lead guitar. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Wild Wild Smith. Wild Wild Smith. (laughs) Wild Wild Smith, too. (laughs) Question, Question number three. Which of Nolan's films has a Bollywood adaptation? A, The Prestige, B, Memento, C, Insomnia, or D, Inception? Hmm. I'm going to go with uh, Insomnia. I'm going to go with Inception. Again, both are incorrect. It's Memento. Uh. Yeah. I I looked it up, and it actually has, like, my favorite Bollywood actor playing the lead role in it, and he's built in that. And it's also, like, three and a half hours long. So, classic Bollywood. (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, here's your challenge. So, we talk a lot about box office on this show, but there's also an important selling point for the success rate of a film, which is physical media as well. And this one... I it's kind of based off of some research I found and some research that I had to do. I was trying to do this towards DVDs, but I could really only find definitive evidence on Blu-rays. So Inception is just barely off of the list at number 11, just so closely tied for the 10 best-selling Blu-rays of the 2010s. Can you list the 10? And sorry, I'm doing this by films that only by films that came out 
2010 and onward. So there's stuff on that are like the highest selling, like Avatar or like Beauty and the Beast or um, Lord of the Rings is on there. But so films that came out in the 2010s. Gravity. Nope. There's a lot of kids movies on here and there's a lot of superhero movies. Um, Avengers. I'm going to go the first Avengers. Yes. That is number four. Iron Man 3. Nope. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <okay>. uh, <laughs> uh, Ultron? Ultron? No, 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 nope. no. Ultron. And nope. Martian. There is a Nolan film oh. on here, though. Mad okay. Max? Nope. Dark Knight Rises? Yep, that's number seven. Toy Story 3? Nope. Which blows my mind. Toy Story. Ooh, man. Four? Nope. No. That's, it's all going to be earlier in the decade, I bet. Yeah. In- Interstellar, maybe? Nope. Yeah, because people stop buying okay. Blu-rays. Um, oh, yeah. Think of what was one of the most profitable profitable movies of this last decade. That was everywhere. Jurassic Park. Jurassic World. Well, that's on there, too. But that was not the one I was discussing. <laughs> <laughs> that's number five. In-game, maybe? Nope. But that's, that's recent. No, probably not. Okay. You said it was everywhere? It was everywhere. And people were sick of it being everywhere. Rio. It's number one. Nope. Wait, what did you say? Think of the most overplayed movie. It's not Rio. Think of the most overplayed movie and soundtrack of the last decade. Man, I'm blanking. It's an animated movie. Animated film. Despicable Me? Uh, That's on there as well. That is number 10. Oh. Shrek. No. Four. No. I don't know. It came out when, like, uh, Luke, uh, yours, our, our freshman year of college. Fresh- Ice okay. Age. No, never mind. Nope. What is, what's overplayed? You're in the Rio. right realm-ish for that one, in a way. Not with Rio for Ice Age. Oh, Frozen. Yes. Frozen, Frozen is number one. Oh. Frozen. <laughs> yeah, okay. Oh, these are a bunch of Disney yeah. movies because there's no Disney Plus yet. <laughs> Back in the old That's days true. when there was no Disney Plus. Actually, that is the oh, only man. animated the dark, Disney movie on days. here. Is there more Pixar? Nope. There's no Pixar on here. The rest is all what the f- sequels and superhero movies, except for one. Oh, okay. What was another early... Man of Steel? No. What was another early 2010s phenomena? It was... Uh, quadrilogy. Oh, pirates! Oh, uh, it's no. gotta be pirates. No, okay. Uh, Hunger, Hunger Games. Yes. Hunger Games. Yes, that was number nine. Ah, uh, okay. I love how the first two. I never saw the third one. Yeah, I think people stopped caring when they stopped being Hunger Games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Star man, Wars. I'm a... Which one? Hobbit. Uh, Force Awakens. That is number three. Okay, uh, no to okay. the Hobbit. Hobbit. That is I good because it's that ranked really trash. high on DVD re- purchases though. Oh, why would you buy that in a DVD? It's so bad, <laughs> Lorez. It's that is the worst watch, worst lo- worst looking movie from film to s- small screen I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> the Hobbit. That the Hobbit films. Yeah, 
It's okay. aged so poorly when you don't watch it on a movie screen, especially. Man, I it only is... saw it in on the big screen. And I don't think I've seen it since mm-hmm. any, any of those. We, there was somebody in jail in the dorm that was uh that was watching it one time, and I was like, "Holy crap, the dragon looks like garbage." <laughs> this was less than a year after, so it's not like dated or anything. Right. It was just smaller screen right. encoding That's of some fun. kind. Yeah. All right, anyway, you have three left. Uh, two superhero movies. One is a sequel to a movie that you already said on here. Civil War. No. Captain America: Civil War. Okay. Uh, Captain America. Nope. Winter Soldier. Well, everyone has bad uh, taste. You're especially going to say that whenever one of them is. One. Whenever one of them is uh, listed. The on Last here. Jedi. Nope. John. Frozen Two. No, yeah. it is. It is a movie that I regret to say you <laughs> and I saw in theaters, John. Oh, uh, Guardians Two. No. Guardians One. Uh, yes, that is on here. That is number six. Oh no way! Okay, okay. I that was not the one that I was saying, John. Right. We right, did a right. double feature. We watched Hail Caesar right after it, also in theaters. I've blocked this from my memory, dude. It has a sequel. <laughs> oh, Deadpool two? Uh, no, the first one. Deadpool. Yes. Deadpool. That is number eight. Okay, got one left. The amount of children that we saw in that theater when we walked in, we were just like, this is awful. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so the last one is number two, and it is a sequel to one of the films that is on this list. Did we say Despicable Me 2? That's the one. That is number two. That's it? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, man. Oh man! Well, that's that's all of them. What a time! One of the other reasons why I wanted to put Inception on here was because I feel like every guy in our dorm had a DVD copy of Inception, right? Like all three of <laughs> oh, us yeah. lived in the same dorm. Oh, yeah. Every single person, even if they didn't have a TV, yes. they had a DVD copy of Inception. Oh, I was yeah. as- I was astounded because why would you own the DVD and not the Blu-ray? Yes. <laughs> true true which and Blu-ray... now both of those are are phase out <laughs> which is funny i know i know you're a tried and true blu-ray fan creed so i don't want to step on your territory there oh. i know that there's a, there's a unique wonder to watching it on a hard copy and i won't yes. i won't dispute that so. yes thank you i'm I'm, <laughs> I'm glad that you're there with me you don't have to wait for it to buffer that's my thing because it always ends up buffering i will step moment. on it i will step on it <laughs> Well, that's just <laughs> on Apple t- that's because all your physical stuff burned down, John. Yes, and we re- and we replaced it. We it was a cleansing fire, and it got rid of all the excess oh, in our man. life. And now we have all digital copies, and it's wondrous. Oh my gosh, wondrous! Okay, and one day, one one day, I will buy a 4K projector, and my life will be complete. And I will watch stream in 4K Dolby. You better have some good Wi-Fi for that. Mm. I do. Okay, well, good. That wraps us up for this episode. Luke, thank you so much for for hopping on here. We always appreciate it. Um, Where can... And for those of you listening, Luke is part of a band called Sweet 25. They are awesome. Make sure to check them out on Spotify. Luke, do you have anything else you want to plug? Social media stuff for you guys or... Yeah, um, we... uh... We've got, you know, we're on Instagram and Facebook uh, at uh, Sweet25Music. Uh, that's S-U-I-T-E, the number 25, music, no space. 
Um, you'll find us on Facebook, Instagram. Uh, we've got a YouTube channel, uh, which is under that same name as well. Uh, I think if you go on Instagram, you can probably find a link to that. Uh, we've got some of our live recordings out on YouTube. We've got uh, originals out on Spotify. We've just released, uh, last week, we just released a new single that we're really stoked about uh, called Independent Woman. Um, that's um, on Spotify as well, obviously. Um, and we've got more singles coming out this year. And the plan is to do a, uh, a full-length album uh, here in the next year, uh, including those. So, yeah, come check us out and uh, listen to the library of uh, Rules of the Frame <laughs> as well. Yeah, you can go back and listen to Luke's Apocalypse Now episode, which is, man, that feels like forever ago. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's a different, different time. Yeah, definitely sure. make sure to check them out. I think... I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but we might put uh, Independent Woman at the end of this episode if you guys want that. So if you want to tune in, if yeah, you don't. Yeah, that but, sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So it's great. It's awesome. You guys are going to love it. Um, our next episode that we're going to be covering is The Lighthouse. This is my personal pick for kind of my favorite movie or what I think is the best movie of the the 2010s. I love this movie so much. It's kind of like my viewing of Inception where I watched and I was like, I've never seen anything like this. We're also going to have on special guest Elise Yeomans back for this episode. So it's going to be great. As always, make sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can find us at Rules of the Frame. We also have our YouTube channel up as well. So you can see our videos on there as well. We'd also love it for you guys to get in contact with us. You can DM us through Instagram or on Facebook. Or if you just want to send us an email or something like that, we always really appreciate it. We love your feedback. We also love um, reviews and suggestions and all that sort of stuff. If you want to recommend a movie or a series or you just want to dispute one of our claims, if you think that Inception shouldn't, be a, shouldn't have been the movie that we had chosen, fight us on it. You know, <laughs> Send us an email or something. We'd love to talk and chat with you guys. Uh, we also would really appreciate a review on iTunes. That just helps our show to become so much more visible. Or if you just want to share with family and friends, we appreciate that as well. Got to thank John for the use of the graphic and Luke, who is here with us now, and Caden Reed, Ethan Stafford for the use of the theme song and outro. This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. She's got it all figured out. She's the talk of the town. And when this girl comes around, she calls the shots. And there you are, dancing in a room full of
gonna find the 